Welcome to The Picklist, the podcast for curious food industry minds. I'm Julia Glotz, a writer, editor, and consultant specializing in food and drink. Every week, I'm joined by an expert guest to discuss the news, trends, and developments shaping food and grocery retail right now. You'll get a personal perspective on how business leaders and leading thinkers from different parts of our industry are making sense of the big issues. My guests will also share what's on their personal reading list, bringing you a curated selection of thought-provoking articles from the trade press, national media, and other titles. You can find links to all the articles and suggestions for further reading in the episode show notes and also on thepicklist.co.uk. Now let's start the show. Hello and welcome to episode 69 of The Picklist. I hope you're having a good week. My guest this week is Kashane David, founder of Cromanti Distillery and Blending House, which is an up-and-coming brand of rum. As you will hear him explain in a moment, Kashane really had no intention of ever running a rum brand. His background is in sports science and mental health, and in fact he was teetotal for much of his life. But growing up in a Caribbean family, rum was always there. It played a really important role in bringing people together, and it had this rich history and heritage that Kashin did not see reflected in the rum brands he saw on supermarket shelves. The story of rum, as he knew it, was missing, so he decided to do something about it. He talks to me about the importance of recentering the narrative around rum and amplifying a more diverse and authentic range of stories, moving the rum category beyond tropes of pirates and parties on the beach, and finding your values as a brand and company. I absolutely loved talking to Cashane. I learned so much, and I think you'll find his story and what he's looking to do with his brand really fascinating. Enjoy the show. Kishane, welcome to The Picklist. Thank you for being my guest. You're very welcome. I've been looking forward to our conversation. Now, we are recording this on Wednesday, the 15th of June, 2022. What have you been up to this week? What's been keeping you busy? Well, we um, our run business is, doing, is gearing up for the summer. Uh, we have a number of events. We have a charity event in a couple of weeks uh, that we're really looking forward to. So we're trying it out. Um, a number of different things where we'll be having tastings of the rum and also delivering our signature cocktails and more importantly uh, engaging the audience in the whole stories that sit behind the rum and also the ingredients that uh, that we're choosing to put in front of them so that's taken up quite a lot of our time just the practicalities of it and what you just touched on, you know, bringing to life the the story of rum and connecting people with that story uh, is yeah. going to be something that we will talk quite a bit um, bit about today. Yes. I'm really interested, though, in your own story to begin with. Wow. Tell me a bit about how you ended up running a rum brand. Where did that interest come from and how did you launch it? Yeah, that's a really that's a really good question. Um, uh, I had no interest in running a rum brand I, for the majority of my life. I was a teetotaler. I didn't grow up uh, drinking alcohol. It was something I came to very late in life, and um, for me, it was the desire I had was actually about um, engaging with people. Um, I'd spent my first. My first career was I'm a, a 
a sports scientist. So I worked with people, particularly people who really weren't very sporty. That was my specialism, as opposed to um, people who were. And um, so it was very much uh, learning that skill about walking in somebody's shoes, understanding things from their point of view. I then made quite an interesting transition into mental health, retrained as a therapist and started to deliver mental health services. And again, similar sort of skill was very much about enabling people to tell their stories. So when I was thinking about what are the things that are really interesting for me and um, rum itself was interesting because of the way in which I saw it connected people it held stories it held knowledge Um, that was my interest and so for me it was going on this journey to understand how does this work with this wonderful liquid that I've always had in my life even as a non-drinker it's always been there um and how how was i going to uh, use that as a way to enable people to capture tell their stories and also connect with each other so that's my particular interest that's my particular slant why i stand stand before you now uh, <laughs> in the world of rum because this wasn't where uh, where i started it wasn't where i was aiming for um but what I found is that it's a great way to engage people in conversations about senses of belonging, about uh, connecting with other people, about amplifying their voices, and also capturing and telling their own stories. That's the essence that I think is the most powerful thing, as well as the fact that it's it's an incredibly great liquid. Uh, and, you know, I love to drink rum, I love to talk about rum. But I think my personal uh, motivation was actually about capturing stories. I think that is absolutely fascinating. But you just said a second ago, even though you were a teetotaler for a long time, rum was part of your life in some way. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? How did you experience rum growing up? Sure. I had um I grew up in a very religious family. Um so we uh we didn't drink, um, you know, lots of things, uh, you know, very strict, very um a very much a rejection of the pleasures of the world, if I can put it that way. And um so so from that starting point, and I often say this to people, um I grew up as a non-drinker in a very religious family, but there was always rum in the house because the place that rum had in particular was very much about marking life events. There were different uh, traditional herbal remedies that we used as a family. It was one of those things that I knew how to use rum and the place it played. Um, and and that was totally divorced from actually drinking it as a pleasurable thing. Um, so my uh, my f- you know my first engagement with rum was not as a drinker. It was as, as understanding rum plays a very particular place, particularly in Caribbean uh, households, um, which isn't just about drinking the liquid. It's much more important than that. There is much more utility uh, in that liquid. So when so when I came, you know, I was new rum, it was always around, but certainly 
uh, much later when I decided to try alcohol, the demon drink, as my mother would call it, um, it was something which was, um, it was an interesting experience. It was familiar, but unfamiliar at the same time. And what I started to see puzzled me because there was all there was also um particularly in the industry in the formal industry they were engaging with them in a way that i just didn't recognize they were telling stories that i just didn't recognize and i became more and more curious about that because it felt to me as if that there were stories that were clearly missing and that was part of my my curiosity to go and understand one why they were missing, but also to say what do I want to do about these stories? So once you decided that you wanted to tell that story and you wanted to to take the plunge into the the rum world in a commercial sense and and yeah, create yes. your brand, how did you go about doing that with no prior experience of the food or drink industry? I became an enthusiastic amateur with an emphasis on the amateur. Um, so I, I managed to convince a rum brand to take me on as a brand ambassador. Um, I uh, engaged myself in the rum world. And, this, you know, I, I listened a lot. I talked a lot. I went to events. I um, exp started to learn uh, about um distilling and blending and the different terminology in this whole world um, so that I could engage with the conversation, understand it from the inside, and then, uh, you know, start making some decisions as to what was the pathway that I wanted to create in there. And it was, it, it, it was, I mean, I certainly can't say that it's something that happened overnight. Um, when I uh, when when I started to engage with rum in this particular way, the objective wasn't to say I'm going to own a rum brand. That that was the furthest thing from my mind. It was just a curiosity uh, about uh, about something. But it was also, I think, if I'm honest, um, I, I became more and more interested in and much more uh, focused on how do I want to particularly for my own children, how do I want to uh, connect them with these stories, with this heritage, with this sense of belonging? And rum is a great way to do this. And at the same time, it's an incredibly difficult and expensive place to, to, to enter and to get into. And so I, you know, I made lots of personal sacrifices. I had a, what my wife would call in my midlife crisis sports car uh, <laughs> that had to go because I needed to fund um, my, uh, my, my period of learning and that period of experimenting with things. So it's, it's taken some time, but it's, uh, it's been a bit of a windy journey. Um, but I think it's the right journey because I was always driven by what do I want to, what's the story that I want to tell that I can see is missing? And I try and tell that story through the, the product itself. And so when did you actually launch the brand then? And where is the brand now in terms of distribution and your ambitions for it? Yeah, sure. Thank you. The, um, the official launch, um, the e-commerce website, which is the, the main site that we are uh, selling from at the moment, was launched in November of 2020, middle of the lockdown. Mm. Uh, some people may say that's very unwise to do it at that point, um, but it 
after a year of procrastinating and COVID, um, I realized that um, it was that there wasn't a perfect time. So it was just the time that I chose uh, to do that. Um, we uh, started uh, with, um, uh, in a sense, a wing and a prayer. But what was uh, really clear, um, the message that was coming back was that people understood what we were talking about. They understood the branding and the message that we were that we were uh, sharing with people. And also, more importantly, we were trying to engage with people so that we could receive their stories. So it wasn't just about this is what we want to tell you. It's also about what can you tell us? What can we learn from? Um, and I think that was that was quite a, a powerful part of that. Um, earlier this year, uh, so we, we started off um, with a reasonable amount of, of sales. The first batch sold out quite quickly. The, we did a second batch that also started selling out. We were starting to get some uh, some awareness, um, but we were also doing lots of other things at the same time. So it wasn't just about the room, it was also about uh, engaging with people and, and capturing their stories. Uh, we did some really enjoyable work where we were recording uh, some of the personal stories or the recipes or some of the Windrush generation. Um, and that became really concentrated um, in the middle of COVID, particularly, the, you know, we became really aware of the impact of COVID on the Black community and the deaths. And it was really apparent we were losing a lot of our elders. And that meant that we were losing a lot of this knowledge. So that's that sped up um, some of what we were doing. Um, we did a pitch to um, uh, to the app Bumble uh, late oh, yeah. in autumn of last year, and they accepted the idea. We did a series of uh, intergenerational conversations between grandparents and grandchildren to talk about life, wisdom, and rum, and those were real enjoyable. We're just in the post uh, post uh, editing of that, but it was. It was, in a sense, illustrative of the approach that we were taking, which was about meeting people on a common ground and understanding as much from them as, as we wanted to give them. Um, earlier this year, we um, were lucky enough to be accepted onto an accelerator uh, acceleration program, which is great because we've got access to a lot of great expertise from the industry and from the sector, which is incredible in terms of helping us understand and be much more purposeful in how we are growing the business and how we're growing the brand, but also what we're learning about, um, about ourselves and about the product and about the customers. So it's been a bit of a, a whirlwind, I would say, um, I would, if you'd spoken to me a couple of years ago, I wouldn't have said that this was where I would have been, but I'm absolutely loving uh, the conversations that we get to be a part of. I'm so interested in what you were just saying about the um, accelerator program as well. Is that with a retainer or a, a, another spirits company or who's running it? It's it's a spirits company. Um, yeah. It's another spirits company. They do a lot of uh, support and development of early stage businesses. And it's been a wonderful experience um, to be part of that. And when you talk about connecting with people and making sure 
you're not just transmitting your story, but also listening to their story in return. Mm -hmm. How do you do that? Is it through festivals and being at events or, or how do you initiate that dialogue? It's all of the above. Um, we did a series last year um, uh, of uh, events at a theatre in South London. We're lucky enough to uh, to get invited um, to uh, put a, a pop-up stand, and we did that. And we spent a lot of time preparing to be able to talk to people about their stories. Um, now, it was what what happened was quite magical because obviously we are we are telling a particular story my family from a very small island from Karakou in the windward islands of the grenadines so we are telling a particular story but people were coming back with their own uh, stories they were talking about their family recipes they were talking about their grandmothers they were talking about the wishes that they had that they had spoken to their parents a bit more and got their stories about their history and their family's history and that was a really wonderful thing. So this is just over, it's over cocktails, it's over sampling of the room, it's over inviting people to tell us uh, things, to share uh, with themselves. And it's, in a sense, it's one of the techniques I learned working in the world of mental health is that everyone has a story and the most useful thing you can do is create space for people to tell their own story in their words. It's their truth. It's a thing that makes them uh, really value themselves and, and has uh, helps them with their place in society. So we were taking that into this context and, you know, getting some really good feedback. And when you're now thinking about the commercial options for your mm. brand and the way yeah. it's going to to develop commercially, do you see the biggest opportunity in retail, in direct to consumer sales, or in hospitality? What are, what's your sense of where the sweet spot for your brand is? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. I think we are we're still working some of that out. Um, we know that um, from the experience we've had the um, direct customer is much more intimate and that's something which works for us as a storytelling heritage brand. Um, we are doing some testing and learning this summer, um, looking at um, the on-trade and, you know, really looking at the different routes that we've got in there. Um, I mean, as you'll know, it's, it's never straightforward uh, in terms of whether or not we are going to uh, be working with agents or distributors of or wholesalers. Um, so we are building up um, that interest and we're getting quite a lot of um, of engagement from uh, from um, from restaurants, from bars and bartenders who we are spending some time with just, telling our liquid story and talking about what does, you know, is this a way, we believe it is, but is this a way to engage a segment of your um, customers who in a, in, a, in, in a deeper way, you know, this emotional engagement, which we believe is really important for people with their buying journeys and their buying decisions. Um, and But the other part of that is, are there a segment of the population who are potential customers who will be engaged because of this way and this particular brand um, 
the way that we present that and position that in the marketplace and they will see actually there is something here that's talking to me whereas a lot of other brands may not have uh, they may not have seen it as talking to them in that way so there's new opportunities and new segments of the market for them and that's what we believe so this is the conversation that we're that we're uh, that we're having that we're sharing with other people and seeing how do people respond to this and when you're talking about what makes your brand different and mm. unique aside from the storytelling approach and the brand yeah. positioning how do you explain to retail buyers or hospitality operators what it is about the liquid itself that is unique what is it about mm. your production process what it is it is it about the ingredients you choose the recipe you choose that makes you different from other rums yeah sure and it's it's quite i mean that's a really good question because it's quite a it's quite a crowded market now it is uh, yeah. there, there was um i mean i think i remember counting in 2020 uh i remember counting there were 36 brands that were launched into the market wow uh, rum brands and those were just in the uk so the so it really was quite a, a prolific period where people were saying i want to uh, get into this um so there are some things about us that i think are um are interesting and will prom uh, prompt curiosity one of the fact is we believe that we're the world's first tamarind infused uh, spiced rum now tamarind is a really interesting um it's a tropical fruit it's something which i i grew up with um you know we had tamarind tamarind balls it was some of the sweets that you had um as a as a child but also um so you've got the, the uh the ingredient which i think is interesting and lots of people know it not for rum but they actually know it for curries as an example or they know it in different contexts tamarind juice is very popular in lot in a lot of tropical regions mm. um so there is the interest that we can uh, engage people in with the ingredient, but there is also the stories that go behind that. So the intention, the map that we've got is that all of the expressions of the rum that we will be developing will be driven by a story. So this, the choice of tamarind was based on a story that I was told by my mother um, uh, about when she was growing up on the island of Karakou as a child and there was one one thing even if there were so they had periods of drought it's a dry island so the children often were were hungry went to bed without eating but one of the things that they could rely on was the tamarind tree because they could eat the fruit it's a very um it's a very tangy uh sweet uh fruit there was the leaves that you could dry and make tea and there's also the roots that you could use in some traditional medicines. So it was one of those things that provided, in a sense, for lots of different parts of people's lives, just this one tree. And I was fascinated by this story. Now, I, I learned this story um, just a couple of years before my mum died. And I was really glad that she shared that because it was there are so many of these stories and a lot of this knowledge that really isn't being passed on and will be lost to us. So I wanted to, to use that and started to develop uh, the flavorings of the uh, of the tamarind rum 
and we then you know perfected that and came out with this uh, tamarind infused spice rum um so that's one of the things that i think is different about us i think the whole approach that we take to telling the liquid story i think is fundamentally different from a lot of the brands that that i see it's also very authentic there is no story in here that is made up this is um this is no mythical sea creature, if you pardon the uh, the <laughs> reference. Uh, this this is very much a story about my family, the people that I come from, the island that I'm descended from, and their story, starting in Africa all the way through a whole period of enslavement and liberation, and still maintaining a lot of their rituals and customs to keep their body and soul together. And I think this is the perfect moment, actually, to take us onto the first article that you have picked for our conversation. This is from liquor.com and the headline is Decolonizing the Whitewashed World of Caribbean Rum. Now this is about the history and heritage of rum and the core argument of this article, as you've just alluded to, is that modern drinkers, modern consumers are by and large divorced from that history. They don't mm. see that history. They're drinking a spirit made from sugarcane produced mostly in the Caribbean, but yep. there's very little in the way of rum is sold and branded that connects consumers with that story. And certainly nothing to remind them of the colonial beginnings of rum or yep. enslavement, the brutal conditions and exploitations on sugar plantations. And the article, I think, makes an interesting point here in that it's not just about that history, it's also about how some of that legacy still affects uh, the rum trade today, brand owners and decision makers in the drinks industry are mostly white, mostly white men in particular. Mm -hmm. yeah. And the article uh, points out rum seminars, it says, at popular spirits industry conferences frequently feature all white and mostly all male panelists. And most rum books and blogs are authored by white men. Yeah. Rum distilleries and import brands are often headed by white men, as are most tiki bars, which inherently function as an extension of the rum business. Kashane, why did you pick this article? What about it stood out to you? Yeah, yeah, thanks for asking. It it was an it was an interesting article that I, I came across um in uh, I think it just popped up my feed. But the thing that I quite in, interested me was that it reminded me of some of the experiences that I personally had. I remember being at a uh, at a rum festival and being surrounded by brands that were about pirates or about uh, life on the beach or about the, the tiki vibe or about carnival and the party. And as I said earlier, I didn't recognize the stories and my uh, understanding of rum uh, from those brands. And it, it felt, it felt to me as if there was a disconnect. And I think that rum, because of it coming from sugar, has a really difficult uh, beginnings. And it, there's very little um, uh, conversation about that. And I think that's a shame because, you know, in, in a sense, it is divorcing it from its reality. 
Uh, and some of the reality is really brutal. So I can understand it's not often where people want to go. But what that does to you, if you originate from that story, and I'm a descendant of those people, it's not very many generations ago, my my ancestors were enslaved. This is a real thing. It's not uh, something that is so far away. But what it makes you feel is that you're not recognized. Your story is not uh, recognized. And I wanted to do two things. I wanted to engage and uh, um, I certainly wanted to prompt people to expand the conversation from a very narrow understanding of what the rum history and the rum story is. But I also wanted to do another thing, which is called recentering the narrative. So if you can imagine, um, recentering the narrative for me is very much about saying, from this position, what does rum look like? Which is different from um, the perception of other people who benefited from rum or people who use rum to um, to to uh, to get richer, to actually uh, benefit from it monetarily. So, for example, easiest example is in the whole of my life, growing up in a Caribbean household where rum was always there in a Caribbean community where rum is very simple. And I think we never talked about pirates <laughs> yeah, because we weren't the pirates. So that's not a conversation. That's not from our worldview. And I think that's one of the things that's just missing. And I think whilst there were pirates, I think it's just recognizing that there needs to be an expansion of the story and also a, a different telling, an additional uh, emphasis of the voices that have either been silenced or have been ignored. And it's and that's part of what this uh, article really starts to talk about. I mean, the life on the plantation for people who were producing the sugar, which then uh, went into the, uh, you know, was transformed into rum, was pretty harsh. I mean, you know, if I if I use a very specific example, the expected lifespan of an enslaved African who came onto a plantation was seven years. That's how long they were expected to live for. That's incredibly painful, and I think. You know, there is a truth that needs to be told about that. I think there is also uh, the other part of that that comes on is also about the abolitionist story. The abolitionist story, as it's presented, is incomplete. And that's one of the things that I think this article really does well. It talks about the fact that, you know, it wasn't, um, there was a vote, we decided to end slavery, yay, everybody's free. It was much more. Uh, laboriously drawn out than that. Um, you know, people had to work four years in an apprentice. The slave owners were kept, were um, uh, were compensated, not the people who worked for free for the whole of their life. Um, I mean, one of the really perverse things about it is that um, I and people like me, descendants of enslaved Africans, were paying the, were paying the slave owners up until not so many years ago for the loss of their property now that's quite perverse if you if you really look at it and i think that the whole thing about the uh the abolition story you know the reason i say it's incomplete was that there was lots of um rebellions and resistance that the enslaved africans actually did um that they they weren't passive they were very active but that's often 
um, not talked about in the same way. So within our brand, we talk about, um, uh, you know, the Grenada Revolution uh, in the 17th century, where we overthrew the British on the island and set up a marine community interior of the island. But, there, but we emphasize a particular active person um, called Cromanti Kujim, who was, he was a drummer, and he was instrumental along with uh, Julius Fedon in bringing the slaves uh, in bringing the slaves off the plantations to fight and to overthrow the British. So I think those are examples uh, that are incomplete in the story, and I think it's really important, you know, so that people can feel included in this narrative and in this liquid, that that's part of the story that I think people can see themselves in and really engage with and that i believe will increase the amount of um loyalty to a liquid loyalty to a brand because certainly you know and it's a it's a theme that we're seeing a lot more of people and consumers re are now much more interested in the values of the brand that they yeah. then choose to support and this is just an example of that when you're having conversations with your colleagues and peers now in the mm. drinks industry, whether it's part of your accelerator program or, or just more generally, how open is the drinks industry to having these kinds of conversations and having this recentering of the yeah, story? Yeah, I think it's 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 more than it used to be. Mm. I think that there are some difficult conversations i think people have to be brave and I, and I really value my colleagues who are um brave enough to stay in the room it's something we talk about in counseling you stay in the room even when it's difficult you continue with the conversation and i think that that is um that's something that i notice more uh, that there is more of i mean there there were there are you know if you're looking back in the last few years you know the uh, the death of George Floyd was yeah. really quite a, uh, a a seminal moment for lots of organisations and industries, and they made lots of promises to take action. And I think that that we still are in the the post George Floyd um, period, where people are people are trying, even when it's difficult, they're trying, and I applaud them for that. And um, I also recognise that part of that uh, transformation is not going to be about me. It's it's going to be about the choices that they make as a brand and as a business. Uh, and I'm always willing to engage with them, but not to actually take that journey away from them or that responsibility, because I see it's it's an opportunity for them to learn and for them to develop. And I don't want to deny that uh, opportunity. From them. And you've really touched on the importance of values and consumers becoming much more interested in understanding uh, who the company is behind a particular product mm. and what they stand yeah. for, what values they have. And that brings us on to the second article you picked for our conversation, which is from Inc. And the headline is Everything You Need to Know About Company Values. This is essentially an advice column. Um, yes. breaking down the principles of how founders and business leaders can define their values 
and turn those values into something that grounds and guides their businesses. Um, it's really curated advice from yeah. a whole range of experts with lots of different perspectives. Um, there's some really good advice in there. One bit that really stood out uh, to mm -hmm. me was from Simon Sinek, who's a business author. Um, and his contribution to the article is he says, values should be written as verbs. They're yep. things we do. Innovation is not a value. Honesty is not a value. You can't walk into someone's office and say, be more innovative or be more honest. Instead, write, always tell the truth or look at the problem from a different angle. Those are values because values have to be actionable. I'm intrigued to know what stood out to you from this article. Which bits of advice really resonated? And yeah, you, you chose one of my one of my favorites yeah. from that article was actually about verbs, values of verbs. Uh, and essentially it's what you do matters much more than what you say than what you do. And I think the reason that I say that is actually because of another quote from there by uh, Robert Glazer, which says, um, because people are watching, if somebody does not match the stated values, you have to do something about them in your business. And I think that that's one of the things that is quite important for us. One is about, uh, we have very clear values as an organization. Um, we are aiming to be uh, creative. We are aiming to have a very clear purpose. And our purpose is actually about recentering uh, recentering this narrative. It's also about being able to engage with people uh, in whatever way. Everyone has a personal story. I think we tell a, a particular story, but everyone has a story. Everybody has a heritage. Everyone has a history. And we're encouraging people to uh, to engage with that. And in a very conscious way, we're doing that through, through our, our brand. But we're also capturing lots of things in that um, and, you know, the, it applies to us as it does anyone else, is that if we are seen not to be living our stated objectives, our values, that is going to be, that there's a real compromise in the level of authenticity and trust. And if people don't trust us, they don't trust the brand, because at this early stage we're developing, it's very much about who we are as individuals. Uh, then that's going to have real uh, challenges for their willingness to go on this journey with us. You know, we tell a story, they can tell us their story, they can be part of this story. And I think that the values are really important. And I guess part of it, if I'm really honest, is watching and observing some of the promises that were made around equality and diversity as a result of George Floyd waver and people uh, you know organizations have they've got over this initial period now you've got to embed this and there are going to be some people who are going to be and i think this is this is obvious but not often people recognize this is that there are if there is going to be more diversity then that's a, that's ultimately about power it's all about you know who are going to be the people who are going to be used to making all the decisions that are now going to have to share in some of that decision making and i recognize that that can be quite difficult so it's going to be really important 
if your staff have really taken to to heart what you said was true about your values if they don't see you uh, acting on them and continuing to act on them or if there are people in your organization who are going counter to them if they survive that undermines all the the trust and the credit that you've got from people who are saying how this organization operates is important to me because I choose to spend the majority of my life at work you know that's the reality uh, of uh, of how we are and I think there was, there was a really interesting um, statistic in there. Um, and it, it's, it said 52% of global consumers, consumers prefer to buy from brands that stand for something that aligns with their personal views. And I think that there is some, there is quite a lot of evidence that people's views and values are changing. And I think that the openness, the transparency, the equality is one of those views that we're seeing a shift in. And it's often being articulated by the uh, the younger generations who are coming into the workforce and making choices as consumers with a lot more spending power than they did before. So those people who choose not to listen to them are going to have real challenges in continuing to grow, grow their brand and also uh, bringing new customers into their into their pipeline. The other point that was made in the article was that it really stressed the importance of having some kind of formal process around defining your values, not just yeah. going on gut feel and, mm. and saying, you know, because I'm the founder, I'm somehow the living embodiment of, of values just naturally and without having to do anything. I'm interested in how you approached that with your own brand and your own business. Did yeah. you have a specific process that you went through to really look to to clarify your values and capture them in some form? How did you do it? Yeah, there, there's a, a lot of um, frameworks around. One of the ones that um, was really instrumental to me personally um, is a, a framework called the Ngoza Saba, which is... Um, you know, a lot of people don't know it, but it's based on seven principles of black life. So seven principles that you would be, uh, that you would direct the way in which you relate to yourself, your community and the wider world. So if I give you some examples, there are principles around self-determination. There's principles around collective work and responsibility cooperative economics who we work with is actually really important to us because it's one of the principles that we hold dear to and then there is also things which are slightly higher which are about uh, what's our what's our purpose and what's the importance of faith and a belief in a higher purpose and a moral direction that we would want to go in so that gives you an idea of the sorts of things that were influenced by us. Now, that's often articulated in lots of different ways by lots of different uh, types of, you know, often worldviews and ideological systems, but that's one of the ones that I certainly was really influenced by in thinking about as a business that is delivering a product into the world, what are the things that are important for us? And they then are driving the values that we have. Now, our final article, in a way, takes us back 
to the start of our conversation. This is an article from the FT, and the、mm. headline is "UK sales of low alcohol and no alcohol beers almost double in five years." This is reporting on new data from IWSR, showing that sales of no and low beers hit. Four hundred and fifty-four million dollars in 2021 here in the UK, up from two hundred and forty million in 2016.、Um, and it quotes industry experts and analysts saying the UK has become a hotspot for low and no beer brewing, and that the level of consumer demand and acceptance of no and low products has taken many experts by surprise. Now this is about beer. We're talking、yep. about rum, but、yep. I was really interested to talk to you about this、um, because we are also seeing more no and low spirits、Absolutely. emerge,、yes. and there is growing interest more generally in no and low lifestyles. You know, particularly younger consumers opting、mm-hmm. not to consume alcohol, and thinking in particular about what you were saying at the start of our conversation about you know you not drinking for for. Significant、uh, mm. time of your life. How do you view the no and low sector? And could you imagine no and low spirits achieving similar levels of acceptance and uptake to what we've been reading in this article about beer? Yeah, I think I think so. I, I think even though this is about beer, I think there's lots of similarities because I think what I'm looking at is behaviours, values, and behaviours, which then、um, direct. Uh, direct how people how people then act. So, for example,、um, uh, you you mentioned、uh, you know I shared with you that I, for a lot of my life I drink I didn't drink alcohol. I think I tasted alcohol for the first time. I think I was in my thirties, about thirty five.、Mm. So it wasn't something that、um, that I felt that I'd missed. But all of the the ceremony and the ritual around、uh, rum, using our example. Uh, I could take part in in exactly the same way because it wasn't about drinking it. It wasn't limited to drinking it, and I think that there is a lot of,、um, you know, people who are much more conscious about how they drink. And I think that you know, there's there's a phrase called the the,、uh, the sober curious or、mm-hmm. mindful drinkers. The mindful drinkers, you know, certainly. Uh, for millennials, you know, I was looking at some research that was saying fifty fifty six percent of millennials now would feel that they are、uh, mindful drinkers. Now, that's not always that they wouldn't drink any alcohol. It would be also that they've reduced the amount of alcohol that they're drinking, or be very conscious as to when they are drinking.、Uh, they're drinking the alcohol,、um, and I think that this whole、uh, wellness drive, you know. Gone are the days. It's not as common、uh, to think about if somebody was to get in the car after they've been drinking, there would be a lot of disapproving,、mm-hmm. uh, a lot of disapproving stares. So that is socially unacceptable now, and I think that's really become embedded、uh, in in that. So that there is a lot more responsible drinking that we're seeing, and the ways that they can do that is actually by taking completely, to,、uh, taking alcohol completely out. Uh, or reducing the amount, or changing the the frequency in which they、uh, they take in their alcohol.、Um, I think you know we all saw that there was a huge change in、uh, drinking behaviours. The amount of pe- the amount of drinking at home was really increased.、Um, 
but also some of the some of the uh, you know, and I and I find this from uh, conversations with my children's friends is that they often see uh, drinking being uh, something which is more harmful, particularly mm-hmm. if it gets out of control. Um, you know, there are people that that believe much more now that having one or two drinks per day is actually harmful as opposed to a relaxation. And I think um, that's going to be something that we see more of. I think that we can help people to make conscious choices about not just the the um the brands that they drink but also about how much they drink the frequency and what it means to them um it's certainly something that i i always uh encourage people to drink socially not to drink individually because i think that for me it's always been something which is about social occasions where you can engage with people and you can feel part of it. And certainly part, you know, a lot of what drives that for me is my experience working in mental health, where people would often self-medicate with Mm -hmm. drugs or alcohol. And one of the things that was a really common factor in that was actually about social isolation. And so it's something that I think there's lots of things around behavior that people have got a message for. And I think that the it doesn't mean the end of alcohol. It certainly means that there are some changes. And I think engaging with those with this conversation with a different generation is actually critical for the survival of lots of lots of brands. We we it's one of the things that we're looking at, uh, the whole idea of seltzers, because there is some. Uh, cultural context of seltzers within the Caribbean, particularly in uh, some of the uh, some of the botanical infusions that people use, which are based on a lot of the very old traditional knowledge around healing people through the use of uh, of particular compounds that may be in roots or fruits or herbs. And that's one of the things that we we are certainly going to be looking at as part of our journey. That's really interesting. And I'm particularly interested because sometimes when you talk about creating no and low versions of spirits like rum, for example, Mm -hmm. um, there can be a concern, can't there, that it might be difficult to reconcile um, traditional recipes and history of, of that spirit with the need to change it, not least to make mm, it alcohol free or no alcohol or low alcohol potentially. How do you view that tension? And is there a tension in the first place? Is it possible to create a no and low version of rum, for example, that respects that history and that tradition? I think that this is uh, one of the it's one of the conundrums I see uh, within rum because rum has a clear, very, very clear definition. It has mm. to be made from, you know, sugarcane, uh, sugarcane juice or the molasses, and it needs to have a certain alcohol ABV. That so that that is one of the things that be, that's the way we've defined what a yeah. rum is within this industry. But I think wider than that, the way in which rum can be used historically is much wider than simply uh, it being down to the ABV. And I think that that's something that should be um, acknowledged. I think that there is a whole history there that can 
that can be amplified, that can be can be explored again. I mean, I, I recognize that there are going to be some challenges around how do you keep a category and a definition of a category. But I think the important thing is just to uh, just to work with uh, work with people's understanding of where they see rum and where they see the edges of rum and rum drinking and the rum use in people's lives. And I think some of this, you know, I am um, envisaging a world that clearly isn't here yet, but some of this, we don't yet know where this is going to lead. Um, and I think the it's the willingness to continually listen and allow people to tell us what they see in rum, which is actually a real strength that, that we can rely on. Now, we're nearly out of time, but before I let you go, I want to ask you a little bit about what's coming up for you in the next mm -hmm. six to 12 months. You've already talked about gearing up for, for the summer seasons, yes. um, gearing up for, for events there. What's in your pipeline beyond that? Anything in particular that you're really excited to work on? Well, one of the things that is uh, much further down the line, but uh, I'll mention it, is that we are... And it goes back to one of the earlier um, conversations uh, we had, which is about um, reimagining our pipeline and our whole value chain and who's involved in that and how we relate to them and how we add value to them as a business as, as they add value to us. So that's one of the things that we are very keen to do. We've had to, to get into the market. We have chosen a particular route of production and we want to look at that again as we are as we are learning more. Um, we are anticipating in the pipeline that there are going to be some other stories which influence other expressions of the rum. So the first one was influenced by a story. Uh, we th that's that's how we how we think is the best way to actually continue to develop. Um, to develop the different expressions of the rum and the different ways in which we can uh, we can move forward as a business, um, we're very much looking for partners who have our similar worldview and value system, and that's going to be something that uh, we're going to be developing more partnerships with. Um, and you know that principle that I mentioned about cooperative economics is where. Uh, we're going to be putting a lot of that into action. Um, we're going to be um, doing more um, in terms of the conversations and inviting people into spaces so that they we can facilitate their, them telling their story. I think it's because it's so much a core part of the values we have in the business that we want to keep on uh enabling that space whether or not that's through a range of different things through podcasts through invitations for open screenings and open tastings that either way that's going to be something that's going to be that will continue to be really important uh, for us and we will continue to develop in that same vein fantastic if people want to get in touch with you to connect, to find out more about what you're doing at Cromanti, what's the best way to do that? The best way is to hop onto our website. Uh, the web address is www 
chromanterum.com. Chromanterum is all one word. And you can sign up to our newsletter. You can drop us an, uh, uh, an email. We, we love hearing from people. We'll always get back to you. Um, and you can also keep an eye out uh, through our socials. We have a really active uh, Instagram um, channel that we are that we love putting things out on, and that's Cromanti Rum. Fantastic, Kashane. Thank you so much for coming on the show and being my guest. Thank you. I've really enjoyed talking with you. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the conversation and found it useful. If you did, please consider giving The Picklist a five-star rating on whichever platform you're listening and leave a review. It tells me you're enjoying the show and would like it to continue, and it helps me reach more listeners. If you'd like to connect, you can find me on LinkedIn at juliaglotz.com and on thepicklist.co.uk. And if you'd like more thought-provoking reads for your personal reading list, please subscribe to The Trim, my free weekly newsletter at juliaglotz.com forward slash newsletter. See you next time.